This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. You're listening to Nirat Ombele on Power 98.7. So the time is uh, 10.38 and as is now customary on Power Talk, on Monday at this time we go behind the party line and it's really an opportunity for us to understand what the political offerings are for the electorate of South Africa. Um, So many politicians making so many promises. This past weekend, manifestos and visions being um, outlined but you know when uh, is it a case of the more things change the more they stay the same so what do I mean by that is the more they talk and almost identify the same set of problems uh, to solve uh, do they all understand the problems fundamentally in the same way and are they all offering to solve them in the same way well today (coughs) we're going to hear from change starts now right there Change is a doing word, you know. Less than six months ago, Roger Jardine announced his candidacy to lead a party that could take South Africa into the future. His announcement, honestly, it came without any fanfare. It was just kind of get down to business. It was loud, but it was no nonsense. And nonetheless, it created a few what I call tremors in the political landscape. It it got people to sit up and think, what's going on? Well, this past week, Change Starts Now announced their vision statement um, and doing it in, you know, a very symbolic place around Constitution Hill, the women's jail, quite poignant, I think, in terms of a reminder of where South Africa is coming from. And as you know, change is a verb and it means make something different, modify it, alter it, create an alternative, move in a different direction. And all of these meanings, I think, are embedded in what change starts now represents in terms of their rhetoric and in terms of the narrative is that they believe the moment has come for South Africa to do things differently. So let's get some clarity on the vision statement. Roger Jardine joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for coming. So the fundamental change that CSN is proposing is what? You know, you... you, you introduced me by talking about doing things. This idea of having policy papers originated in the middle of the last century, and we have reams and reams of forests of papers of policies, and I think there's an overload. And where we're coming from really is to say, we need to focus on practical solutions. So the old way of writing policies, taking it to cabinet, having it debated, and once it's adopted, then you think the work is done. A modern uh, government and a modern country needs to see things differently. There needs to be more focus on delivery and project management. And that is where the frustration of South Africans uh, comes through so clearly. So we're focusing on getting the right people who know what they're doing so that we can implement all of these plans. We have the engineers. We have the experts. They're all out there. It all dies when it comes to implementing. So the word change, is is, it looms large in the minds of all South Africans. We've pulled together an intergenerational movement that says this is urgent. Um, I left my role as a chairman of a major financial institution. 
because I thought I want to be part of this change as a South African, as a patriotic South African, because where we find ourselves, we need to turn to each other, not on each other. And the more things drift, the more there's fracturing in society. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's what we're trying to do here. And I can give you some examples of practical things. Yeah, We can talk about them in a moment. But what I'm understanding you to say is South Africa does not have an ideas problem. It has an implementation problem. Just the impetus to get things done and to get things done efficiently. That is a real, real impediment. Uh, and you use the word project management. And I think anybody who's <coughs> built a house or had to build a, 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 a business would understand that you need to make sure that the pieces of the puzzle dovetail. And so it's a capacity issue as well that you are raising here. So one of the things you point to as a fundamental need in the country is job creation. And I don't think anybody uh, would disagree with that. We do see graduates coming out of university, no jobs, including doctors. And yet we've got this um, parlor state of the healthcare system. How do you think jobs would be created. So from what you've said, I've almost understood you to have a an FDR New Deal type approach to the economy. If you can direct public funding into infrastructure, fix the infrastructure backlog, get people working on building that infrastructure, then certainly for a season, people have jobs whilst you're stimulating the economy. Have I understood that correctly? Right. So South Africa currently spends about 13% or thereabouts um, of infrastructure investment to GDP. Kenya is about 20%. Years ago, we had a national development plan that said we need to be at 30%. And when you model that, that investment against how many jobs it can create, it can drive unemployment down to around about the 10% number. Okay, So there's a lot riding on implementation to create jobs. Mm. Okay, when, when we as the public read about ESCOM and Transnet, in our daily lives, it's, it frustrates us because we can't cook, for example, or it happens in the middle of watching Bafana beating Namibia or whatever, right? Yeah. But we need to join the dots between that and how it is strangling the economy. We, yeah. We're just not growing on the back of that inefficiency. Yeah. So ending load shedding and job creation go hand in hand. Yeah. And that's why we need to free up the experts who can fix this to get on with a job. And I think they're just buckling under the weight of a government that's strangling them. Okay. So obviously the energy issue is pivotal to the recovery and the stimulus of the economy because electricity drives the economy, drives bandwidth, it drives everything. A, mm. a small business can't function without energy. You can't be a baker without the electricity to bake the bread. We get that part. And we have also seen the numbers that say $2 billion a day lost, 2% mm. of GDP shaved off each quarter. So there's the one issue which is solving the ESCOM energy crisis, the Transnet logistics crisis. But even if you solve them, you still need something to stimulate this economy. Because even when we did have the lights on, South Africa's GDP was less than 2%. And we know we need this economy growing at 6% and above if we really want to make a significant dent on unemployment. So what is the broader job creation strategy? So, so the big trap in terms of job creation in this country, well, there's no single magic solution here, right? But we have to get on this path of investing more in infrastructure in this country. It is such 
there are many studies that shows you what the multiplier effects are of infrastructure investment. Yeah. We cannot be languishing where we are. I'll give you a simple example. If you look at many industrialized and industrializing countries, say over the past 40 years, mm-hmm. and you look at steel, steel consumption, how much steel do you use in your country, right? Yeah. You'll see how their steel consumption has just grown in leaps and bounds. And that's a measure of development and job creation, etc. If you look at South Africa's, we've gone nowhere in 40 years. Yeah. We've had little peaks around Madupi and other big banner projects. Mm-hmm. So increasing infrastructure investment against GDP is a vital cog in, in employment creation. Yeah. Then there's another thing. In many countries, the number of people employed in the formal economy versus SMEs versus self-employed, the mix is very different. Yeah. We need to be freeing up our people to unlock their entrepreneurial spirit rather than harassing traders and that sort of thing. Mm. So there's a, there's a basket of measures that we have to put in place. We don't need more long policy papers on this. We have to get on and do it. Okay. You've also made reference to social safety nets, and they've become very topical since the president made that very unfortunate statement about uh, social grants being ANC policy, and whereas it's, it's actually enshrined in the Constitution. But that's uh, a debate for another day. But in a country where there are huge inequalities, um, I've often quoted the Gini coefficient saying mm. it's 0.6. It could even be higher than that. You do need a measure of pro-poor policies as well. So you can stimulate the economy, harness entrepreneurship, but you also have to give poor people a leg up, the incontinent a leg up, child-headed households a leg up. You do believe in a social democracy. You've said so. But what is your view particularly on things like social grants, basic income grants, um, and the kinds of support that the more vulnerable amongst us need? You know, I'm trying to recall who it was who said you can have a free market economy, but you can't have a free market society. Okay. And in our country, with the masses of poor people here, mm. you, you know, some people say we can't afford to be doing all these things. I say we can't afford to not do them. Okay? Yeah. And in, my message to business, in fact, we, we've positioned Change Starts now as a movement rooted in social solidarity. What does that mean? It means that the private sector has to work with the public sector, especially now where we find increasing poverty in our country. So we have to have a very real and strong social safety net in this country. And again, you mentioned this. It is absolutely wrong for any political party to appropriate social safety nets. It's a constitutional enshrinement, Section 27. So it's it's. Quite frankly, it's, 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 uh, it's dishonest to say that. What we intend doing is to look at the whole system and to make sure that the poor are looked after and most importantly, that there's a journey out of being there into a decent job. Yeah. Uh, could you elaborate on that one? Because I think certainly the Power FM listeners, they understand the rationale, the compassion uh, and the practicality really of making sure that the poor are not left destitute. But what they wonder is, what is the timeline of welfare? When you get people on a social relief uh, and distress grant because there's COVID, well, COVID is no longer an existential threat. So should the grant still continue? So how long should people be on social welfare for? Before you say, now we need to look at 
cons- uh, capex instead of consumption uh, welfare. What examples do we have in the world where it's done properly? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very important, you know, uh, let me just backtrack. Uh, a week or two ago, I was in Soweto talking mm-hmm. to a person on a Sasa grant. I've been going around to communities to yeah. just get firsthand, you know, um, what's happening. And this, this person tells me every six months they renew their grant and then because they have a health condition, he goes at four in the morning. Yeah. They only see 80 patients per day. It can take him more than five days to see a doctor. And he tells me there are even people, there are people who are more sick than he is, right? Mm. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a, a global uh, private sector alongside people who are suffering like mm. that. So when we model um, social safety nets, we have to model it alongside economic growth and job opportunities and job creation. I can't give you an exact time frame, but a policy that only says we'll keep you on a social grant for the rest of your life, it is not good for the fiscus, and most importantly, it is not good for the person. I think the dignity of a job is something that we need to bring back to all South Africans. Yeah, and so perhaps the Scandinavian model, the Swiss model where you tax people more, they know they'll be supported at retirement, and if there's a temporary blip, there's help, but it's not a perpetual cycle. That money could be doing more in the economy yep. to create jobs. Okay, let's talk about public services. You've said a lot about education. You've said something about healthcare. healthcare. And obviously when you began, you spoke about the efficiencies of um, managing key government departments. So... If we use education as an example of building social infrastructure to capacitate the state to empower young people, just talk us through that trajectory and how getting public services rendered better would um, change the look and face of South Africa. So, you know, after I've just ended almost a 25-year stint in the private sector, Mm -hmm. but before that, I was a director general. So I have some insight into the way uh, the government works, and I'm pretty sure it still works the same way. Um, I I believe that there are civil servants. You know, when, when a young person decides to become a policeman or a nurse or a government employee, it, it's not with the intention of being unproductive and doing nothing and frustrating the public. They get there, and very soon, their enthusiasm is squelched. Mm. And I think... I think uh, the public service needs to be released from this weight of inefficiency that is foisted on them through having the wrong people heading these departments. Okay, So we need to be sure. Uh, I don't agree with people who just write off every public servant. I think there's a serious problem at the top. Uh, the next government will have to make sure that it has inspirational public service leaders who can harness that energy and that potential mm. so that the people on the ground can feel that enthusiasm. I, I, t- I visited a primary school in Sharpville last week. Yeah. Okay? That school has been without electricity for three years. The, the principal is such a dynamic, energetic person making do despite the odds. Yeah. Can you imagine if she had an enabling environment mm. from the public service? And so it starts with people. The people are there. The leadership needs to be um, yeah. unlocked so that we can, and, it, and, and also, you know, in other parts of the world, 
it's a prestigious thing to be a public servant. You know, you you go to university and then you aspire to a top job in a certain ministry or in We need to find a way to to get that spirit into our public service. Yeah, Yeah, and China is highly competitive as well. Uh, they take the very top 2% of university graduates in the field of politics, yep. public administration, international relations. Um, so when you work there, yep. you are the creme de la creme. Pressing issue for business, which is a big constituency for you, but also for society in general, is crime. Now, crime manifests differently in a corporate sense versus a personal sense, but it is a South African problem regardless. Whether we're talking about stolen trucks of coal on the ESCOM side, corruption inside the public sector or a young woman who simply cannot walk down the road because she's not safe um how are you going to tackle crime and its manifestations in this country i want to give you an example um, i've also been talking to crime and security experts because a change starts now we want to focus on solutions not long flowery policy statements mm-hmm. and so we're looking at where exactly do we intervene right so here in Gauteng, in 2010 or thereabouts, uh, house robberies and business robberies were on the rise. Okay, uh, A project was started where roughly 360 policemen and women were ring-fenced from a, a, a team of 32,000. And just by focusing on house robberies and business robberies and hijackings also, I think, it came down and perpetrators appearing in court and being convicted went up. So we need to look at how we structure our policing mm-hmm. so that we can focus on these hot button on these hot button issues. Also the way we train our policemen and women. Yeah. We need to take another look at that. Would it would it help to pay them better? I think the people who are performing these important roles in our society like nurses, like teachers, like policemen and women need to feel valued, need to feel um, that they are respected, and they need to be paid appropriately. Yeah, to be incentivized. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things you have said as Roger Jardine. Mm. Recently, you were quoted as having said that um, the ANC president, in other words, the state president, is like an absent parent. And I think many people latched onto that because it's a very emotive uh, use of words in a country where 57% of the homes are run by single parents. Um, most understood the pain of an absent parent. Why do you accuse the president of behaving like somebody who is completely detached but shows up at the end to claim the glory? That's an absent parent. I think the president's track record on this score speaks for itself. I think in a democracy, it's completely unacceptable for a president to never have a proper press conference with the media and take questions. I I can't recall, maybe you can, but he is just not available. Okay. I also think standing in front of curated crowds, adoring crowds and making speeches uh, riddled with, uh, you know, things that are not truthful is not going to cut it. And so... I think South Africans in your WhatsApp groups, our dinners, etc., a question is often asked, where is the president? Mm. And so I said that because I know it resonates with us, with our people, mm. this absence of a father figure or a father, in fact, to be there. You know, I mean, the, 
the president is really, if you think of it, a consoler in chief, a celebrator in chief. You know, it's, uh, and he, I think it speaks to, I was really talking, yes, about the president's disposition, but also what are the leadership qualities that we want in our leaders? You know, you can't talk about society and be completely detached from how it operates. And so that was really what the metaphor was was about. And I think it was it was accurate. Okay. Let's talk about the election that you're going to be contesting. Uh, I don't know if you'll agree with my characterization, but I'd say you're a mid-range uh, centrist party, ideologically speaking. I, don't, I wouldn't say you're radically left or radically right. I think you are somewhere in the middle. And if you agree with that characterization, then you are alongside three or four other parties that have a similar message, a similar approach, uh, a similar set of priorities. Action essay, Rise Mzanzi, Busa, perhaps the IFP, the UDM. So why not band together under one umbrella? Because by being separate entities, you're literally splitting the vote of those who ideologically stand in the center. So first of all, I, I think we need to move away from these traditional labels because whenever a solution is presented, our political culture automatically says, well, that's left-wing, that's right-wing, that's capitalist, that's socialist, okay? Our starting point, I think, has to be where do we find the best solutions to the problem that we are trying to deal with, mm. okay? And so it may be a little bit of all of those things. Um, if, if you were to ask me, <laughs> which you just have, I think we, we modernizers. You, you know, it's 2024. The world has changed. We're living in an era of AI and mm. global trade and wars and a whole range of things. And our responses have to be relatable to what's happening in the modern world. And that's why I use the example of using policy processes from the middle of the last um, century. So we we social democratic in our outlook, but practical in our approach. So for example, the balance sheet of SA Inc. is in disarray, okay? We will have to leverage private sector capital to help South Africa get out of, out of this hole. I don't know what label that will be called, but it's a practical way to take the strain off our fiscus so that the public sector can do more for the people of this country. And for the private sector to tap into their reserves, there has to be trust. This issue of the trust deficit of the government has been um, yeah. an ongoing conversation. What would it take for the private sector to believe in the future of South Africa to unlock that capital? Well, I think in addition to trust, which I really think, you know, we talk about the trust deficit. I think it's actually an ideological deficit because... On the one hand, the president says to the private sector, please come in and help us, and we set up three work streams. And the next day, a minister in his office says, the private sector is behaving in a treasonous fashion. Mm -hmm. So there's a knee-jerk reaction. And I think a change of the union buildings where there's no room for ambiguity and ambivalence around the role of the private sector and the role of the public sector and civil society and how we all work together I think that will help to move us forward. And finally, um, as you've said, Roger Jardine, you are a doyen in business, former first-round chairperson, former DG. Um, was it science yeah. and technology under Nelson Mandela? 
uh, and now a politician. So you've existed in all three spheres, civil society, business and government. What have you learned? And fundamentally, what are your leadership values? What I understand very clearly is that the public sector is not the private sector. So I think there's this notion that we must just get the private sector to do uh, engaging public goods. It's not as simple as that. So I understand that distinction. I think a leader is someone who surrounds themselves with the best people, often people who are smarter than they are, and somebody who has the EQ, who can take the feedback, and somebody who can talk to the people and be available and res- be responsive. And so in, in the, when I stepped into this space, my, my goal was really to be part of changing the national political landscape because we can't carry on like this where we are forced to make these simple choices. And in doing so, to help to shift the political culture in this country where our leaders are more accountable, our parliament is more functional, and most importantly, our people have the dignity that they felt when we made the first X in 1994, which has been eroded. Let's give that dignity back to South Africans. Okay, Roger Jardin, ladies and gentlemen, the party is called Change Starts Now. And as he says, you can label or you can just get on with the business of changing South Africa. Time for the news. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.